This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the host and producer of Poured Over, and I'm so excited to have Nevo on the show with us today. Her new novel, The Chosen and the Beautiful, is just out in paperback. It is our April speculative fiction pick of the month. And oh, you guys, it's The Great Gatsby, only with fantasy and witches and demons and a Vietnamese-American protagonist. Even though you know her name, Jordan Baker, you do not know this Jordan Baker. So I'm very excited to have Ni here on the show so we can dive right in. Absolutely. You have built this book around The Great Gatsby, but there's a lot happening. So let's set it up. So we've got The Chosen and the Beautiful. And almost 100 years ago, F. Scott Fitzgerald published The Great Gatsby, which we now know it as a great American classic. When it first came out, it was a book that was vastly disappointing to himself, to his family, to his publicists. And it wasn't until World War II, when it entered into a program to get literature to American soldiers, they became the sort of runaway classic that we know of today. And because it was a book that I read at a very formative stage in my life, it's always lived in my head. And no one in my head has lived more loudly and more with more determination than golf playing Jordan Baker, who is a minor character in The Great Gatsby. And when the opportunity came up a couple years ago for me to pitch something to my agent, Diana Fox, I basically pitched Chosen the Beautiful, which is a queer and fantasy reimagining of The Great Gatsby starring a Vietnamese-American protagonist. I jumped at that chance. And then about five months later, I had The Chosen the Beautiful. And now you have it too. Wait a minute. You wrote this book in five months? I did the reading for it in one and a half to two. I did the writing in three months. Wow. Okay. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> it's what? 260 no. pages. Well, you just you just have to write like, what, a thousand words a day and you, you mostly got it. It's a very short book. I mean, it's got that going for it too. I double Fitzgerald's word count, but it's still a very small book. It's true, but it really, really moves. So we see Jordan, who's narrating everything. She's sort of the Nick Carraway of mm-hmm. your version of Gatsby. Yeah. Nick Haraway was my first unreliable narrator. You never forget your first. And mm-hmm. uh, that's where Jordan comes from. So Nick is here, of course, and Daisy and Tom Buchanan, of course, and absolutely Gatsby himself and the Wilson. So readers of Gatsby will be familiar with the cast. But one of the fun things that you do in this book that I was not totally expecting, and it, it is a shout out, I think, to Kathy Acker and her work, especially Pussy King of the Pirates, which is her retelling of Treasure Island. There's a lot of the original Gatsby text woven into your story. And can we just talk about your influences for a second? Kathy Acker with Pussy King of the Pirates is absolutely one of them. Just in terms of sheer off-the-wall vibes and storytelling, Kathy Acker just had it in spades. Neil Gaiman, Angela Carter... There's been a lot of interesting stuff about how to market this book and how to brand it. And I just keep saying, you know, no, I'm a fantasy writer. I'm a genre writer. It's like, if I can't just fix all of my problems by having a dragon breathe fire on everything, I don't know what to do narratively. Of course, Zen Cho, Ken Liu, basically whatever I'm picking up at the time. Reading from the 1920s was a lot of fun, but also putting in all the fantasist influence as well for The Chosen and the Beautiful. Okay, so you know you're starting with Jordan because she's sort of the most open to interpretation. I mean, if you're playing with Nick or Gatsby or Daisy or even Tom to a certain extent, there are parameters within Gatsby that you chose to work with, which is, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is your story, even though you lean on Gatsby. Part of the reason for that is that, so I did a couple close readings of The Great Gatsby before I started, of course, and I was focusing on Jordan there. I still have this copy of The Great Gatsby where I have basically posted noted every one of Jordan's appearances and everything she says. And I realized that functionally, narratively, 
the book doesn't work without Jordan at all. And she is there literally as a plot device. She is having secret conversations with Jay Gatsby. She is getting Daisy Doll the secret meetings. And the more I read it and the more I read into it, the more I realized, okay, so either Jordan Baker is playing her own game, making her own calls, or she's stone cold evil because who sets up your best friend with a long lost love of her life and doesn't tell her, which is what Nick assumes. And once again, Nick is this basically escape hatch because if we understand that Nick is an unreliable narrator who doesn't know everything, no matter how much he sounds like he would like to, there are things that don't make sense from a character perspective. And that's where Jordan comes in and gets to actually speak and say, no, no, we were just lying to Nick and that's fine. A lot of people lie to Nick. And Nick doesn't really know that a lot of people lie to him. He wishes they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, there's that. He's a little dreamy on that front. But at the same time, he doesn't do anything with the information. Oh, no, no, he's bad at that. Kind of stares at people like he's a Labrador. (laughs) It must be very nice to be stared at like that. I think it's a very forgiving gaze he's got going on a lot of the time. Jordan, though, is a Vietnamese woman. Her parents presented as she was adopted, but there is a suggestion that maybe she was stolen. I like to think it's more the suggestion, but Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it is... Throughout The Chosen and the Beautiful, we have the story that Jordan is telling us, and we have the story that she has been telling herself all of her life, and the fact that she doesn't quite realize it's a story that she's been told as well. It's very important for her to get her story straight, both for herself and how she presents herself. But that is a narrative that she learns to challenge during the course of the book. Where does she come from, and why, and what the people have been telling her whole life, which Jordan, even at the age of basically 21, sees herself as a very keen operator. She's very smart. She's very savvy. And I remember thinking how smart I was at 21, you know, and I wasn't. So this is part of that growing up process, especially when you come from a background like she does. Well, and that's the thing. Her parents have quite a lot of money. She's Mm -hmm. insulated in a lot of ways because of who her family is Mm -hmm. in their community. And yet she's never quite comfortable. And one of the things about Gatsby that I do appreciate is the fact that it's always been a story of outsiders. Mm -hmm. And Jordan is really the ultimate outsider, even though her parents are. Mm -hmm. There is a pleasure, at least to me, in discomfort, in never being quite settled, which seems paradoxical. There's this great Oscar Wilde quote where he says that when I care about someone very much, I make their name a secret. I never speak it, you know, and he keeps it very much to himself. And you understand that as a gay man, part of that is survival. There's an intense pleasure in viewing the flaws of the people around you and saying, I'm not a part of that. Even if maybe at the beginning you want to be, or even if maybe you still do, but you learn to take comfort where you stand. And that's part of what Jordan is doing. She is very comfortable in her discomfort and in using it as a weapon. I know you said you were talking to your agent and your agent said, no, no, this is the one, this is the one. But it feels like you've been walking around with this idea for a lot longer Oh, sure. So we started The Great Gatsby when I was a sophomore in high school. And the day we started, I nearly got run over in the parking lot. That is way less of a remarkable incident. I was a really spacey kid. But, you know, near-death experiences will kind of stick with you. And I remember even sitting in class when I was a sophomore thinking, when does the uh, copyright run out on this? (laughs) Not long after this book was announced, someone on Twitter said something like, so how long has Miss Vo been sitting on that? I'm like, why haven't you guys? Come on. Am I the only one doing this this year? The story has lived in my head for a long time. I mean, my parents came to this country just a few years before I was born. And the American dream is a big deal for us for a number of reasons. It very much is. And the more we look at it and the more we turn it over, the more we realize I think we've been sold a bill of goods, basically. You know, I think the American dream is something that so many of us wrestle with. And, you know, I suppose you could argue that Gatsby is the most American novel ever. 
as it were. And Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a novel about fakes. It's a novel about money. It's a novel about dying for a dream that never wanted you in the first place. And class. Mm-hmm. Class, too, because class mm-hmm. and money are not always the same. Thing. No, absolutely not. So here you are, and you've actually sort of taken it out of the male gaze. It's Gatsby and Nick are very present in the book, but this book is really about Jordan and to a certain extent, her relationship with Daisy and less, even though she's having a thing with Nick, <laughs> even though they're having fun. I think they're having a lot of fun. Yeah. I, yeah. It's really about the women, which subverts quite a lot. <laughs> Fitzgerald was doing in Gatsby. When I was writing the book, it came to me that if you asked Jay Gatsby who this book was about, without a moment of doubt, he would say it was Daisy and he would be lying to himself and to us. He believes it's about Daisy. He believes that it's about this grand love that you know he has for this girl that he met once in a parlor before the war. And he'd be wrong. He'd be very wrong. And part of it is the fact that that would still be him telling us. It would still be Jay Gatsby telling us what the story was about. And then when you step back and you try to look at these women who are having their stories being told, and then even you look at the pieces that you're given from the male characters, like one of the biggest moments that comes to mind is the fact that in The Great Gatsby, Daisy very briefly mentions the twilight sleep. And that was a part that got to me because, you know, I read it as a teenager and we glossed right over it. I had no idea what the twilight sleep was. And then I looked it up. So basically what we have is a form of painless birth. Someone would go into labor. They would be put under using, among other things, scopalamine. And they would wake up after a painless sleep with a beautiful baby in their arms. And this sounds amazing. It sounds incredible to a generation of women who have been very much part of the birth giving process for their mothers, their older sisters, their aunts. And the thing about this twilight sleep is that although the person is knocked out for it, they are still feeling all of the pain and their body remembers. And there are these nightmare scenarios of the fact that these bodies are still going through pain. So they're blindfolded, they're tied down as they give birth. And they do wake up and they do have a beautiful baby in their arms. And then the dreams start and then the memories start. There are these people who wake up and they don't know why they're having this trauma, these flashbacks, until it comes out more clearly what the twilight sleep actually was and what it does both physiologically and physically. And Daisy is in her early 20s. While Daisy is dangerous and Daisy is culpable for a lot in the book, she is in her early 20s. And like I said before, I remember what being in my early 20s was like. That is a horrifying thing to go through at any age, especially when you're that young and that vulnerable. Jordan's actually more comfortable with the Daisies and the Toms and the Nicks and the Gatsbys than she is. She even comes out and says, I don't know what to do with myself in Chinatown. No. <laughs> I don't stand out. I don't know what to do with myself. And she wouldn't be the first... Asian American to feel that way. But you've also upped the stakes a bit too, because there's this thing called the Manchester Act. Yes. So there's no real Manchester Act. It was based on the various Chinese exclusion acts that were coming out during the day. And it's very much, I mean, there's a number of reasons it's there, but one of the big ones is because I needed something for Jordan to look at that a lot of her white peers do not give a damn about. It is a point of polite conversation for them. It's an academic issue. And even for Jordan, as her very well-meaning aunt says, you know, my dear, you are rich. And that buys her exception, but she doesn't know how much at this point. And there's that unease that, once again, Jordan just has to navigate and live in. And Jordan, I think she puts it at one point, there's nothing as uninteresting as something I can't have. If she can't have acceptance, she'll be uninterested in it. And if people don't love her, then she doesn't care. And that's one way to navigate. And it can be a very lonely way to navigate, but it's a coping mechanism. And all they do is they help you cope. They do not help you do it healthily or happily, but you will cope. But that's a big piece of 
Gatsby itself, the original Fitzgerald novel, too, is every single one of those characters is so lonely that they don't even know what to do with themselves. Mm-hmm. So Jordan's just keeping with her crowd. <laughs> it's fashionable. She does have this very cool skill that you've handed off to her, though. She has her own form of magic, and it is based in an actual Vietnamese art. And I want to talk mm-hmm. to you about it for a second because it's very cool. And there are other Asian communities that also have it, but it's the art of paper cutting. And Jordan can cut paper and bring things to life. She's not particularly good. And there's a character who shows up later who's like, my sister and I can teach you how to do this right because you're just messy. And that's just (laughs) You're terrifying. Yeah. It's ugly. It's bad. Like, you don't know what you're doing. But Jordan can cut shapes. And the first time we see her as a child, Mm -hmm. she's doing it. And she brings a tiger to life. And then she does something with Daisy. And we are going to try and keep a little spoiler free. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big one. There's something that happens with Daisy later where Jordan is able to use her paper cutting skills. But did you know from the start that was going to be a piece of this book? Yes, I did. Because in The Great Gatsby, there is a line on page two that kind of plays into the idea of counterfeity and paper sacrifices. And I'm like, oh, that's right there. Thank you. Part of it is just the fact that the more I looked into it, the more that the whole paper cutting tradition from Vietnam in specific and uh, Asia in general, there's so much there and it is so very region specific and it's such a beautiful art. And part of it is for me, the fact that it's historically been an art that was begun inside the home with, you know, with women, with people who were working within the home. And it was done with scraps. This isn't like some sort of beautiful art that you get sponsorship for from the government or that someone trots out into the town square. This is something you do at night in your off minutes simply because you can make something beautiful and something lovely from what you have left over. The art is, is called paper cutting, but it started out with, it possibly predates paper, which I thought was super cool because it starts out with like leaves or bit of bits of leather or even with very light bark. And it's also very difficult. I tried to do some of it in preparation for this and I quickly realized, oh, I'm bad at this. <laughs> I can do It takes a lot flakes. more delicacy than I've got, yeah. I can do snowflakes. That's, mm-hmm. I, I, I can, no, I can't, I can't even do snowflakes. I just had like, I'm like, well, that's a lot of, bits of paper I have on my desk now. So yeah, I didn't say the snowflakes were cute, but I can do them. I mean, if you need to entertain a small child. <laughs> most, most small kids actually uh, are, are much better at paper cutting than I am. So I'll, I'll let them have that. Like, I mean, I wrote a book. They're like four. What have they got? Well, and speaking of writing books, though, so your <laughs> career really starts just as the pandemic is starting in 2020. <laughs> you also are the author of a series and right now. It's about to become a three book series. But right now, the first two volumes are out. It's The Singing Hills Cycle. And it's based on Chinese folklore. Mm -hmm. But you came out of the slush pile. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I think I need to give you a timeline on this because it's super weird. I wrote my first novel, which is actually Siren Queen, coming out in a little while. I wrote it in 2017, and it got rejected. And I'm like, oh, that's fine. And then I'm like, okay, well, I can just send it on submission. It'll be great. So I sent it on submission. And then Tor.com came out with their call for novellas. And literally, I saw the call for uh, submissions for the novellas. It said, oh, 20,000 words. I can write 20,000 words. And so I wrote The Empress of Soul and Fortune in about a month or so. In all fairness, I had the shape of the book for quite some time before that. I sent it in and life being what it is, I just didn't think about it anymore because I had a lot of other things going on. And so during that time, I'm submitting Siren Queen to various agents and seeing if anyone was very interested in it. And basically, within one week, I got two letters of interest from agents. And at the end of that week, I got this email from Rishi Chen at Tor. And the emails just started out with, you know, it was it was a wonderful email. It was complimentary. It was kind. And I was reading along thinking, oh man, this is a sweet rejection. She must be so cool. And it turns out she wanted it, which 
blew my mind. So, you know, basically in the span of two weeks, I sold my first novella that got fished out of the slush pile and I got my agent, Diana Fox. So that was very busy 2018 for me. So Empress of Salt and Fortune is the first volume of the Singing Mm -hmm. Hill Cycle. You won the Hugo Award for debut novella, which is a very, very cool moment. It was a very odd moment because now the expectations are very strange. And every time something weird happens, I'm like, is it because I didn't get nominated for Hugo this year? Is that why? (laughs) But but apparently I was told, no, that's not why. Okay, so you have written three novellas, Mm -hmm. Siren Queen, which is coming in May 22. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Your first novel, which is now about to be published. So Chosen and the Beautiful, are you writing your novellas as you're writing The Chosen and the Beautiful? Or do you put them aside for a second while you're writing a standalone like Chosen? I think in an ideal world, I would actually just work on one thing at once. But no, they're they're kind of all just worked on concurrently. And, you know, hopefully they stay in their boxes and I don't suddenly have poor uh, Chi and uh, Almost Brilliant wandering into a 1920s party for which they're dramatically ill-equipped. Well, in your novellas, they are absolutely traditional novella, roughly 130 pages, which, you know, longer than a story. You know, novellas are actually very pleasing art form. Oh, I love them. And if you've noticed, every single novella I've written so far has been just barely up to word count to the point when I think at one point Rishi asked me during, um, while we were doing some of the final layout work for Empress of Soul and Fortune, and she said, we're just barely close enough to be able to bind this. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. So no, it, it's like the fewer words I can finish a story with, I will absolutely take that. I think there are some, I understand why you love novellas, but I think there might be some listeners out there in the world who are wondering, why not just write a novel? I mean, you've got these three tiny 128, 130-page novellas. What do you get from writing novellas as the creative that you don't get from writing a novel? Being done faster. <laughs> no, no, it's it sounds so terrible, but it really is. My attention span is like this. It's about the size of like a juvenile cockroach. So for me, it's like the sooner I can be done with it, because the fun of a novel is, you know, starting and getting to know everything. And the minute you know anything, which is about generously about 75% of the way through it, you're done. (laughs) And the last 25% is usually when I'm like, okay, I need to fake my own death, change my name, run away to northern Wisconsin and live in a haunted house full of peacocks. And then it's time to get off Zillow and go back to work. Okay, you know peacocks are really noisy, right? Oh, yeah, they're no, it's terrible. They're painfully noisy. No, they're, they're painfully noisy, but they'll keep the townspeople away from my property. Okay, as long as you know. Oh, yeah, no, they're terrible little birds. There are people who do not know how noisy they are. They're mean <laughs> and they're noisy. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Well, so I met some very sweet ones, but yeah, they're, the, the screaming comes with it. It's part of my mystique now. It's part of my brand. Okay, so two novels, three novellas. And is there a fourth coming in the uh, Singing Hill cycle? Did I read that right? Yeah, basically, I'm going to keep writing the Seeing Hills novellas until they make me stop, basically. There's actually one that is not getting published yet. I've written it. It's dark enough, and I'm, I'm probably not supposed to give any spoilers for it, but it's dark enough. Uh, when they read it, my agents, Diana and Rishi, I think they did the equivalent of looking at me and said, Nee, are you sure this is what the world needs right now? And I'm like, probably not. So uh, that's just sitting in dry dock until someone wants it. So hopefully someone does sometime. I'm sure they'll figure it out, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know, when your agent and your editor are both saying, hmm. They're both so much smarter than me, and it is so important to have them do things, say things to me. Like, me, was was all this cannibalism really necessary? I'm like, emotionally for me, yeah. Yeah, it was. Diana? Well, it's also true to the story in certain <laughs> cases. But again, we're just going to tease all of this terrible stuff. I do want to ask about your creative process, because here you are, you know, we've, we've mentioned your agent a couple of times. We've mentioned your editor a couple mm-hmm. of times. Absolutely. You like to be done fast. I get that. You like brevity. 
But you also really love story and you really love character. And that is so clearly brought across in The Chosen and the Beautiful. So can we talk about your process for a second? I mean, you've got to have some method to jumpstart everything, but then what does it look like when you're talking to your agent? What does it look like when you're talking to your editor? Like, how are you working in notes from them? I've spent most of my career alone, actually. Uh, I've been a writer for Oh, about 15 years or so right now. So, you know, I was a freelance writer. I've been a ghost writer. Most of that time period has been spent doing things like writing cockroach care guides and how to deal with abscesses and alpacas. It's, it's gross. So I've mostly been on my own. And mostly my whole process before that was put words on paper, send it off, and then their money appears in my bank account. That is my favorite part of the writing process. And so suddenly I signed on with Diana Fox. And you know, so I'm not used to the editing process at all. And she's like, okay, this all needs to be fixed. And I have to fight down the first impulse that is basically this tiny diva that lives in my head going, how dare you? So we have to fight that, that we first, we first we fight that impulse. And we also let go of the dream that I will turn into work and Diana and Risha was like, oh no, this is fantastic. This isn't the right to print. No. No, it never can. So first, it's also finding the diva that lives in my head. That's important to do. A lot of it is being alone. I'm very good at being alone. So part of it is letting other people in. And part of it is just, you know, button chair and uh, words on the page. I have always known that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is words on the page. As long as the words are there, they can be fixed. They don't need to be good, but they can be fixed. And that is the entire possibility that my whole career is based off of. No matter what I do, I have to understand that I can fix it. How did you get started as a ghostwriter? I didn't realize that was part of your story. Oh, basically just a sort of a chain of really, really badly paid jobs, followed by less badly paid jobs, followed by people who uh, passed me on to other clients. And finally ending with Diana, who said, you are being exploited really loudly in my ear at 2 a.m. Because that's when Diana and I talk. So she is very happy to see me done with that portion of my career and look at the money. So am I. So let's see, it was client work. It's once again, it's words on the page and people will tell me if they'll pay for it. And if not, then, you know, do it again or dump them as a client. Luckily for us, you're writing fiction now. <laughs> but what would you say to someone who's starting out and has heard all the stories about the slush pile and finding an agent doing the work and button chair and all of these things. What what would you say? Because your career has had a really interesting arc. <laughs> Weird. And I don't know if I can, I, it's like, okay, first off, I have to say, I can't recommend this path. This path relied on me basically not sleeping for like about 15 years, I think, and balancing three or four jobs at once. And my big stroke of luck was 15 years ago, lucking into a third shift tech support position. I got to sit on the phone and I'm like, oh, I can just write while I'm waiting for calls to come in. So that's where I got started. And then from there, I just moved to an entirely freelance existence, which is a very kind of demimond twilight sort of job to live in. You know, it's like, I still have to stop myself from saying that I'm unemployed these days. I'm like, because I'm not. I have like an agent and money that comes in. So I'm not actually unemployed. It just feels like it all the time. But what advice I would give to other people do more networking than I did. Definitely, definitely talk to other people. And the people who are writing around you, they're not your competition. They're your colleagues. And the people who are writing at your level at the publications that where you are also hoping to get published, they're going to be your best allies. They really are. They're going to fight for you and they're going to tell you what not to do and what to do. They're the best people to have around you. If I had more people like that around me, I would have learned that my pitches are kind of terrible, which once again, Diana had to tell me. It was kind of funny. So I was submitting to agents. I was getting some nibbles. I was getting some full manuscript requests, which is great. And then Diana said something along. I was like, oh yeah, your pitch was awful. And I'm like, oh my God, 
And she's like, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because she also asked for the first pages and she loved the first pages and that's what you need. But apparently in my own head, I feel like when I'm pitching a novel, it's sort of like trying to ride a cow. You can, but no one is very happy about it and neither of you are very good at it. So that's where I am with pitches. Get better at pitches than I am. How about that? Well, and here's the thing. Some of your peers have blurbed your book. Oh my God, yeah. We're talking R.F. Kuang and Alex E. Harrow and Ming Chan and Erica Swyler, who are all writers that we're quite fond of, BNN certainly. And it was really great. I mean, wow, those are some fun names to see. It was incredible. And I remember the conversation where their names came up, actually, because, you know, there's before uh, books come out, you know, your agent and your editor get on the phone together and they're like, okay, who do we know that we can ask to blurb this? Which is, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And Diana and Rishi are just sitting there and it's, you know, we're on this three-way call and there's they're there's pitching these names that I've read before you know and then they turn to me and they're like Anidi do you know anyone and I'm like guys I I go to no parties I live in Milwaukee I know no one so uh that's been kind of stunning and it's still a little bit more that whenever anyone tells me I've read my book I'm like wow how'd you find it and they found it because tour.com's marketing team is fantastic but it's still it's still a bit of a shock for me even two years on it's still really exciting though especially as a bookseller to see how many women are writing fantasy and science fiction and and just looking for the stories that are interesting to them. And I mean, Alex Harrow's Once in Future Wishes. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. Jerry by Kaming Chung and R.F. Kuang's Poppy War series. She has a new novel coming in August called Babel that I cannot wait to get my hands on. And certainly Erica Swather, who is working on something new. That's all I know. She's working on something new. <laughs> I have to be patient, but it's really great to see women taking their seats. You know, because for a it's long fantastic. time, there was this perception that it was really kind of a dude thing to do. And it's like, well, actually. And anything like we do is considered a niche, right? It's like, it's like if it's queer, if you're a woman, if it's if you're not white, it's like you're a niche and you're, you're special interests. And of course, people can't roll with that. And of course they can. But I think the fun, too, and what you do with these characters, what you do with Jordan, what you do with Nick and Gatsby and Daisy, who I still don't have a lot of patience for Daisy. And (laughs) that's a long seated dislike. And Tom, I mean, mm. but what you do with these characters in your world, and your world really is a seamless blend of, you know, I mentioned this at the top of the show, it's Gerald's original narrative, but then you've taken these pieces and worked them in. And it's it's magic. It's fantasy. It's a lot of sex. I will say a lot of sex. <laughs> it's a very short book, but there's a lot of sex. And your characters are who they are. And they're kind of great, but wow, they're messy. Yeah. The way that people are messy. Mm-hmm. But how much extra research did you do while you were building your work? Because obviously you've given yourself the constraint of keeping to the Gatsby kind of orbit, but you know, people dive into his pool and then they turn into koi. Just great detail. Come on. That's a great detail. It's so much fun to write. The party scenes are so much fun to write. So we know that party scenes are what they are. But Gatsby has a moment where you're talking about how his household staff is always visible because he's trying to make a point. Or you're talking about clothing, other things like that. Giving birth. You know, the bit with Daisy and the twilight sleep and things like that. So how much research did you need to do? Okay, so... The part of the process was I went through and I reread The Great Gatsby, of course. And every time I ran into something that I absolutely did not understand or even thought I didn't understand, I went and looked it up. I got a lot of mileage out of that. Whenever a song was mentioned, I went and looked into the whole text of the song. If I could, try to, if I, could I would try to listen to it. And a lot of the songs actually have to do with the poor boys and rich girls, actually, which I didn't realize when I first read the book. And then I started reading about the 1920s, 
which is basically, in a lot of ways, the birth of modern advertising. It was very much a world where we were just beginning to get advertising and what it could look like and what it could promise us. And right now, you know, advertising is this terrible thing that we deal with when we're trying to get to our social media or when we're trying to watch our TV. We don't like it and we're very suspicious of it. But back then, it was the first time anyone had offered a lot of these people everything. And that's what advertising has always done. It has offered us a better world, a better us. And we had no defense against it in the 1920s. It was brand new. Of course, we believe what the nice newspaper tells us. And so part of it is my understanding of magic that I created for The Chosen and the Beautiful, which is magic offers us everything. And it's not true. It never has been true, but we're so open to it. And the parallel to that was my research into electricity, which comes out a little bit in the novel, but I never get into as far as I want to. The idea that electricity is magic, light whenever you want it, with a flick of a switch, suddenly there's power and there's light and everyone can have it. Cities have it. But if you live in the rural areas of the United States, you're still living in the dark. You're still you're still on candles. You're still on lanterns. And that difference, and once again, it, it boils down to power. And that's all of it. That's, that's advertising. Advertising promises you power. Electricity gives it to you. And magic does both. And magic shows up in your new novel that's landing in May. Mm-hmm. That's Siren Queen. And I. it is my first novel. And I am I'm so excited. It, it is Hollywood that is run off of Fairyland rules set in the 1930s. And at the very center of it is my first real main character, Lily Wei. And she's a Chinese-American actress. And you don't even want to know what she's willing to do to win. Well, I'm going to find out when I read the yeah. book. <laughs> okay, but she's the first character you created. So when did you know you had her voice? I'm assuming that's how Siren Queen started, is that you locked onto her voice and said, oh, I think I have to write this book. Or did you start with the idea and think, oh, how am I going to tell this? This is one of those things where I love chatting with my friends online because I have a perfect snapshot of when Siren Queen started. And it was literally me late at night talking to one of my friends saying, hey, have you ever noticed that 1930s Hollywood is a lot like Fairyland? They take your birth name, they give you a new one. Sometimes they give you a new face and the promises of eternal beauty and youth, but it's all, but you have to play terrible games to get it. And my friends didn't tell me to shut up because I was going on about that for like a few hours. And after a few hours, I'm like, huh, who's watching all of this? Who's watching me build this world? And I'm like, oh, hi, Lily. It's nice to see you here. Did it take you long? Are you are you having a good day? And that was Lily. And I knew who Lily was right away. And she hasn't changed much, actually, which is a miracle, given the fact that when we started editing it, uh, Diana said something like, she's like, you know, this is three novellas in a trench coat, right? And I'm like, you can tell? And she says, yes, yes, we can all tell. So, you know, that was deeply humbling. Okay, but you turned those three novellas in a trench coat into a novel. <laughs> With a great deal of help, yes. yes. Okay. Do you have a favorite moment from that editing process for Siren Queen? Yes. It's a bit of a sad one and is very much a picture of me editing. There was this fight in the book. It wasn't a fight I had with anyone else, but it was a fight and it just wasn't landing. It just wasn't landing and wasn't landing. And I think Diana said something like, why don't you take a couple runs at it and come back? And I'm like, okay. So I wrote five versions of that fight at the end of the day. And I was like, pick one. <laughs> and it was fine, actually. One of the versions I think had like mecha battle in it because I was so tired. Nailing that fight, and I'm actually still really proud of that scene, was the win. Do you have a favorite moment from The Chosen and the Beautiful? During the writing of it. Yeah, I, I think so, because big final scene between Nick and Jordan, which is, it's a big deal. It's a big deal mm-hmm. for the novel. It's a big, it was a big deal for me. I wrote it during my sister's wedding in Las Vegas, and I was at diner inside the hotel, which was inside a casino, I was staying at and it was about 3 a.m. I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna go down to the diner and just read this. So 
went down, I was writing it, and I realized, I'm like, huh, I could gamble at my booth. I didn't realize I could gamble in my booth at the diner. <laughs> I finished that scene with that realization, and I'm like, and it was like, oh, cool, I may already be a winner. <laughs> that was the moment. And honestly, that scene is so great, and the emotional payoff is really significant. We're not going to say anything more. I, I really hope so. That was so much fun to write. Got to sleep after that. That was fantastic, too. It was really fun to read. <laughs> so, Chosen in the Beautiful lands in paperback the beginning of April. We have Siren Queen coming May 10th. And then October 25th, you have Into the Riverlands, the third volume of the Singing Hills cycle, which yes. will go until it doesn't, which I'm very excited about for you. Oh, thank you. But what's next? What are you working on now? Because there's no way these books are just coming out and you don't have something that you're working see, on. Um, no I'm trying to figure out what I'm allowed to speak about and what, okay. what not yet. But let's see. At some point, there will be a novella sequel to Chosen the Beautiful, which is called Don't Sleep with the Dead. There is a third novel that is basically in the same world as Siren Queen and The Chosen and the Beautiful. I have this sort of underground project that I'm working on because no one wants it and no one has bought it, so it's always a bit risky. It's sort of a gothic that I'm about 11,000 words into, which I'm like, I don't know who loves you, but I do. And that's all that's all that short story has, so there's that going on. And, you know, it's going to be whatever, whatever grabs my attention next, I suppose. Whatever anyone will buy, how about that? I am available. I am so available. That all sounds perfectly fair. There's a bunch of stuff that you and I could talk about, but it's all spoilers. <laughs> all spoilers. We're leaving those out. That's not helpful. Here's the thing. One of the big things I've realized during this whole writing process is I'm not alone. And it's it's sort of like, it's both this wonderfully cathartic, oh my God, I'm not alone. There are people like me everywhere. And also, uh, you know, you're not alone in the house, right? Kind of moments as well. There are so many people who are rooting for this, both uh, in terms of sellers like yourself and everyone in Barnes & Noble. And Everyone who has been so kind to me at tour.com, everyone at Fox Literary, it's a little intimidating. And so I was reading this book on, in 1960, there's the first manned expedition into the Challenger Deep, which is the deepest point in the Mariana Trench. And talking about casting light on the seafloor, there's this black fish that looks a little bit like a soul that's on the bottom of the seafloor, has no eyes, just sitting on the sea bottom, flood it with light. It just kind of like, they see it kind of fiddling around a little bit. And they're like, oh my God, this thing has never seen light before. And then it just kind of turns around and trundles away because what the hell else is it going to do? I feel very much like that fish. I'm like, well, this is brand new. What the, what's up here, you know? And so that's mostly what it's felt like. And I don't know if other young writers need that awareness of what it's like, but it's a lot like that. Okay, that is really funny. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. It, it's like, it's like there's, and, then, and the fact that the little soul just kind of like trundles away, like I have no use for this. I'm like, oh. Okay, little guy. Well, don't give up on this completely. We like reading you. <laughs> One thing I sort of want to bring up before I let you go, it's really wonderful to see Jordan as a Vietnamese American and to have her moment, especially when we're living through this very strange moment that we're living through right now in mm. America. And if people could create their own fictional versions of the Manchester Act, I think there are some folks oh, who yeah. would do that in a heartbeat and are trying and some are succeeding. What was it like for you seeing her come to, I mean, representation matters. What was it like for you watching her come to life on the page? I loved her so much and I was so afraid for her. It's facetious and extreme to say that every piece of writing has a little bit of my soul in it. Even the fact that you already know that I've written things like Cockroach Farming Manuals, it's there. And Jordan is not me. Jordan is most my memories of being 20 and how amazing and exhilarating and exhausting that was and how much more time I had for things that I don't bother with these days, you know? But at the end of the day, it was incredible. 
it was an honor. It was a privilege. It was it was a roller coaster and a bit of a nightmare and a little bit a bit revelatory. And then like, wow, I was really dumb when I was nineteen. When I was uh, when I was twenty, you know, I was not a smart kid. Also trying to respect that. I'm like, okay, I wasn't smart. But I also see why I wasn't smart. So we're gonna we're gonna give that room to breathe. The fact that so many ways I felt I was trusting people with Jordan in a way that I don't really trust people at all. I had to. And I think that has paid off. That has, I think that has paid off for me. I think it has paid off for people who've written to me about her, which is deeply humbling. And every time is a shock and a pleasure. Scary and wonderful. How about that? Those, those, we'll boil it down there. I don't know. Scary and wonderful sounds like why we read. <laughs> yeah, it's the best reason to read. Well, I'm really looking forward to people meeting your Jordan and your Nick and your Gatsby and your Daisy and yeah, Tom's still there and whatever. Oh, yeah. We, we, <laughs> did I just show my bias? I think I did. <laughs> Nevo, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The Chosen and the Beautiful is out in paperback now, and it is our speculative fiction pick for April 2022. Greetings, book true believers. It's time for your TBR Top Off, where we'll be recommending three spectacular titles for you to combine with Nevo's amazing novel, the Chosen and the Beautiful, our speculative pick for the month of April. I'm Margie coming at you from my bustling home store in Northville, Michigan, and I am joined by Nevo's biggest fan, Mark. Hi, Margie. I am probably up there as far as Gigantor fan of Nevo. She is super incredible. We were lucky enough to get to talk to her last week, and I'm ready to talk about some complimentary yummy snacks to go along with this meal. Oh my gosh. And it's, I hope everybody's got their pen and pencil ready because you're <laughs> going to have some good ones today. So I'm Mark, why don't you go ahead and take it away? I think I will. Uh, so the first book I chose is also one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite books, and is the only book besides The Chosen and the Beautiful that prompted me to host a themed book club. And that book is Circe by Madeline Miller. Margie, if we all lived closer, I definitely would have had you and Niwa over for this book club bash because it was themed and amazing. Um, if there's costumes, I'm going to need to see some pictures. <laughs> Luckily, podcasts are not a visual medium, but I will send them to you privately. Circe. Madeline Miller. She's a pretty well-known author at this point. A lot of people know about this book, but I really can't talk about it enough. And if it gets more people to read this, all the better. This is a book that places the spotlight on one of Greek myths most relegated to the corner characters. You might remember Circe from the Odyssey. She was the pretty lady who lived on an island and turned men into pigs. And Odysseus and his buddies stopped by, had a quick adventure, and bounced. And she was basically forgotten. In truth, though, Circe, who is the daughter of the Titan Helios, is connected to so many Greek myths. She is the Minotaur's aunt. She helped birth him, actually. She created the monster Scylla, who tried to knock Odysseus and his buddies on their butts. And she is also the mother of Telegonus, who is the son of Odysseus. So not only did they swing by to uh, have a quick adventure, Odysseus got to hang out and have, you know, some grown-up adventures of his <laughs> own for a while. Um, plus, she's also Greek myth's pretty much first witch. Uh, gods, goddesses and gods. I love this book so much. It's the story of a woman who basically is told that her value is minuscule and will never amount to anything, but she grows into a power that she discovers herself and an agency that she really 
cultivates and it can really just inspire any reader. Plus the book has a sensory delight that is very similar to The Chosen and the Beautiful. I tell everybody that this book tastes like honey. It tastes like sunshine. It tastes like plants and dirt and olives. I love this book so much. Please, please read Circe by Madeline Miller. Mm, makes me want to stretch out in the sunshine. The one that I have for you today is quite different in tone and style, actually. It's called The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. Oh. I know. And that is air as in Jane Eyre. So this is such a fun book. It plays with time, it plays with history, and it definitely plays with literature. Our heroine is called Thursday Next, an operative with Spec Ops 27, otherwise known as Litera Tech. In this London, at this time, books are serious business, and Thursday spends much of her time trying to validate manuscripts and untangle cases of forgery and other literary malfeasance. After an opportunity to join a team who aims to take down notorious criminal Acheron Hades, and it goes horrifically wrong, Thursday transfers to her hometown in Swindon, convinced that Hades is still alive. It turns out she was right to be worried, as Hades has coerced her uncle Mycroft to allow him access to Mycroft's invention, the Prose Portal, which allows a traveler to enter any book. And Hades has chosen Jane Eyre as his kidnap victim. I really can't describe more of the plot because <laughs> there is so much enjoyable stuff that happens and I don't want to give anything away. But rest assured, you will meet Jane Eyre. You will meet Mr. Rochester, along with many other literary characters, a weapons-obsessed corporate agent, a rogue father who pops in and out of time, and a love interest who's about to get married to another woman. This novel is rife with humor, warmth, and adventure, and I can't recommend it enough. The best part is, if you fall in love with it like I did, there are several other Thursday Next novels, including Lost in a Good Book and The Well of Lost Plots. All speculative literary adventures. They are fabu. But always start off with The Air Affair, and that's by Jasper Ford. Such a good book. The children have forgotten about mm. The Air Affair. And we're here <laughs> to bring about a resurgence Indeed. that is much needed. Good pick. Um, I do have one more. I chose one that's kind of fitting with the theme of 20s, 30s New York City. Kind of getting that flapper, gin-soaked vibe. And the book that I chose is Rules of Civility by Amor Tolls. Mm. Uh, yeah, he's just a ridiculous genius. So this book features a protagonist who probably would have been besties with Jordan Baker from The Chosen and the Beautiful. Her name is Katie Content, and that's Content, K-O-N-T-E-N-T. -E the names in this book are the best. <laughs> Katie is just so damn cool. She is living in New York City in the 30s, uh, 1938, I believe. She is pretty poor. She doesn't really have a whole lot going for her, but she is primed and ready to plop herself into the bright young things world, despite her lack of high society upbringing. So a chance encounter at a bar with the lovable snob Tinker Gray, again, the names. <laughs> Beautiful. So good. Tinker, come on. It places her amongst the social elite and readers get to 
feel like they're a part of Katie's journey in just really wonderful ways. She moves through rooms like she owns them. Her attitude towards life is just very inspiring. She's just damn cool. And I want everybody to read about her. She's there to have a good time. And she really doesn't have any problems tamping down those pesky feels or feelings that get in the way. Now, does that create bittersweet moments for her down the line when those feels bubble to the surface? Absolutely. I mean, it's immortals for God's sake. He manipulates emotions like a sorcerer. And that pairing of New York City fun times with deep emotional punches is why I love this book so much. And that is Rules of Civility by Immortals. I told y'all you needed to get your, actually, I said pen and pencil. I guess I should have said pen and paper. <laughs> I mean, you could write but notes on a fine. pencil with a pen. Yeah. If yeah, you're like me, fine. you can just write on your hands, but Please there's don't. three fantastic recommendations for you to pick up when you come in for Nevos, the Chosen and the Beautiful. Thanks everyone for tuning into Port Over. We hope you like and follow the show so you never miss one. And please follow Barnes & Noble on social media at Barnes & Noble. My name is Margie. I'd love if you'd follow my home store at BN Northville. And you can find me on Instagram at Margie Bookbrain. And I am Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Or you can pop onto my Instagram at Bookmark79. Beautiful. Happy reading. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.